Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Rico, and I'm very excited to have everybody joining me tonight. We've got a, a really great show for a couple of reasons. We're going to have a uh, Coach's Corner is, is back this week, and we're going to talk with the, the, the gang, if you will, here in just a moment. I'll introduce them in, in just a few seconds. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by a very special guest, the president and CEO of Mystical Golf out of uh, Myrtle Beach, Carolina. And uh, his name is Claude Pardue, and he'll be joining us uh, on the second half. Um, but I just want to remind everybody, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. And you can find us on the blogtalkradio.com network. Just go to blogtalkradio.com, type in Golf Talk Live, and you will find us there uh, front and center every Thursday evening live. Um, also, I want to remind everybody that Golf Talk Live is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing top quality programming designed to attract mm-hmm. the golfing enthusiast. Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, uh, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from the top PGA and LPGA teach professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today at golftipsmag.com. All right, as I mentioned, we've got a great show tonight. Uh, Joining me on the panel, first up is Jamie Leno-Zimron. She is an instructor, body worker, and consultant. Uh, She's also an Aikido six-degree black belt. Uh, Class A LPJ teacher professional, a corporate and conference speaker, uh, executive trainer and coach, and speaker for Vistage International and TEC Canada, which is the executive committee. Uh, also joining on the panel is John Hughes, a PJ master professional and honorary president of the North Florida PJ section, and is the uh, recipient of the 2013 PJ of America Horton Smith Award. And he's also a Golf Tips Magazine Top 25 instructor and part of Golf Tips uh, golf advisory staff, so glad to have him aboard as well. And then rounding out the panel, uh, last but not least, is Paul Castor, uh, one of the country's leading golf coaches, a Golf Channel uh, lead uh, coach, and uh, recognized by Golf Digest as one of the best teachers in New Jersey for uh, the years 27-2018, and also honored uh, by U.S. Kids Golf as one of uh, 2017's top 50 kids teachers. He's at Level 2 certified uh, with TPI and Aimpoint and K-Motion, and also serves on the Foresight Sports Advisory Board and the New Jersey PJ's Junior Golf Committee. So, guys, welcome to Coach's Corner panel here tonight on Golf Talk Live. Thanks Thank for having you, us. Yeah. All right, appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Um, so, as I was telling you off air, uh, we're going to talk about women and the game of golf. And as I was mentioning, you know, I came across a very um, very interesting uh, article or booklet, actually, if you will, and it talked about a variety of different things. So I just want to read out a couple of things, and then we'll sort of get into our, our specific uh, discussion tonight. So this was uh, written in the Ford, and it says, we all think of golf as a game strongly tied to traditions, uh, and, many, uh, and in so many ways it is, 
<clears throat> excuse me, golf is uh, also a game that has over hundreds of years since its inception shown great resiliency, growth, and change from the implements of uh, the game is played with the course. It is played upon to the attire and even uh, economics that underpin the game. We have continuously seen an ongoing transformation. Uh, the world continues to change uh, with an onslaught of new technologies playing a big role in reshaping our economy. Uh, the accompanying social and cultural changes are significant. Uh, with the advent of a new economic reality, we are seeing shift in priorities and a shift in the way people, in particular women, uh, participate in this changing world. So um, just a, a quick note, more than 50% of the population, or sorry, 52% of the population and 50% of the workforce uh, are women. So they fuel an economy that is bigger than many of the countries in the world, uh, particularly here in the United States. And what was really, really interesting is, and I'm going to ask just a, a very sort of a brief thought on, on this statistic I'm about to give you uh, from each of you. And, and Jamie, I'm going to go with ladies first. I'm going to start with you, and, and then we'll go with John and then Paul. Um, game-changing insights generate uh, uh, through a study that was done by Boston Consulting Group. Uh, their study shows that 42% uh, of the 90 million people who have expressed interest in golf are women. So it's not quite half, but it's pretty darn close to half. What do you think about when you hear that stat? Um, not First off, 90 million, roughly 90, it's probably a little more now, it's probably closer to 100 million. Um, people in this country um, have a, a vested interest or some interest in playing the game, and nearly half of them are women. Yet, when you look statistically through the golf industry and even people playing now, that percentage, and we'll get into that a little bit later, the percentage is actually very, very low in comparison. I'd like to get your thoughts on what you first think about that um, statistic and then why you think the actual numbers don't pan out to that of the interest. What are your thoughts, Jamie? Well, that is an amazing statistic. I hadn't really heard that, but, um, yeah, approaching – a half of those interested in golf are women. I mean, any business person ought to put their ears up, right? Ought to be, um, be paying right. a lot of attention to that statistic. Um, I mean, if you're just even looking at it from a business point of view, um, in terms of, you know, who's your market and, and all of that. Um, and we also know that, um, you know, women, uh, well, any new golfer and women in particular would be buying equipment and buying clothes and fashion and, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, women are also in many ways, um, you know, very involved with the choices that they make for their kids' activities and uh, junior golf. We've got um, this incredible LPGA girls' golf programs. And, you know, so, you know, there's, there's just so much potential there that's, that's crazy if you really think about it. And I think also uh, it's kind of interesting to think about covid um, in that golf is the probably one of the sports that is the most uh, playable, right? <laughs> the thing that we can do um, mm -hmm. and the people can do right. even during COVID. There's ways to be safe and distant and all of that and to be outdoors and to <clears throat> be physical and to be social and all these things we can do in golf that we can't do in so many other uh, sports and, and athletic activities just because of the nature of it. So um, I think it's a statistic we ought to be paying great attention to even if it's only from the business point of view. But, um, you know, I look at things, you know, from more than that point of view. Um, 
yeah, the old sort of what, golf, gentlemen only, you know, ladies, I forget mm-hmm. what the F was, right? <laughs> um, Forbidden. But, uh, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, such that, you know, in so many ways, um, the world has been, and the outer world and the world of activity has been, uh, quite frankly, dominated by men for, you know, decades, mm-hmm. centuries, for, for a very long time. And that is applied to women, too. That being said, we know that women have been involved in golf, women have been fantastic golfers, and, you know, we have the early founders mm-hmm. of the LPGA and before. And, um, right. you know, so it's not like women, uh, you know, haven't played golf, can't play golf, um, anything like that. Um, however, it's, it's all been about opportunity. So we do have a world that is changing and changing maybe even more rapidly. It's like the pace of change is accelerated, um, mm-hmm. you know, even in the last week or two. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's just happening. So right. a lot of norms, a lot of old norms and uh, dominant norms are suddenly being questioned even more than they have been for since, you know, call them liberation movements or whatever, in the last um, decade. So, you know, all that is happening, and I think that important that we continue to uh, really do all that we can to bring women into the game and provide the kinds of, um, you know, developmental learning opportunities and um, and just so many opportunities in golf for women. And the interest is there. And so it's I think it's on us to, uh, <clears throat> you know, to to support women in the game of golf. And, uh, yeah, so that statistic's a very, very important yep. one. Yeah. Right. So those are some initial and, and thoughts tell- I have. I'm sure we're going to saying a lot more, but uh, those are initial thoughts just to, to yeah. throw them out there to get us started. Yeah, no, that's a great, uh, some great points there. Thank you, Jamie. Um, John, I, I want to get your thoughts on, on the, the, the numbers that I threw out, but I want to also ask the, the question a little bit differently or, or pose a, uh, I guess, a scenario, if you will, a little bit differently. And that is, um, you know, women are obviously interested now and, and are more involved in, in business um, than they've ever been in the past, and uh, they have a, desi- a strong desire to participate in, in golf. Many, you know, women I've even had on the show uh, over the years have uh, that are now have, uh, you know, uh, some form of business in golf, uh, not necessarily teaching, but in other aspects. Who at one time would go in, you know, the office and, you know, after a weekend, and they would hear the guys, uh, you know, as they say around the old water cooler and, and talking about you know, great round that they played and, and kind of feeling left out because they weren't able to get into discussion. One of the key points that many women bring up is they sort of sit on the sidelines, as I just pointed out, and in, in significant numbers. And the key thing is that they their argument or their, or their comment back is they're waiting for an invitation um, because it's not something normally that they would have been involved with, and that causes some of the hesitation. What do you think of the numbers first off and what can we do to fill that void in making many of those women feel more welcome by offering and extending that invitation? What can we do as professionals, number one, and as a whole in the industry? Um, what do you think, John? Thanks for the pleasure of being on the show again, Ted. It's always a good time being here, Jamie and Paul, looking forward to a good hour of discussion with us. It's not the normal coaching discussion. The 42, 42%, that's an awesome number. Uh, but I would tell yep. you whether it's coaching, operating a facility, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. I think the, the first thing we've got to be doing 
is listening. I'll give you a really good example. When I was in the golf school business, over 58% of the purchases were made by women. Uh, We kept track of that. And they were buying for a spouse. They were buying for a boss. They were buying for a child. They were buying for a friend. Uh, They were buying because they're involved in volunteerism and needed something for a charitable gift or needed something for a door prize. Uh, If we're not listening just to that movement, then we're certainly not listening to the water cooler or the body language of the water cooler and that female going, wow, if that's what it's going to take for me to climb the corporate ladder, then I need to get involved. I need to start doing something. Uh, One of the people that come to mind is Ann Brown. She's the CEO of Ahead. She's formerly of Cutter and Buck. This is exactly how she started uh, playing golf. She she felt like, hey, I I had to climb the corporate ladder somehow. She was in fashion. She migrated to start playing golf, and one thing leads to another, and she's the head of one of the most powerful clothing companies that we have in the golf industry. That all, all that happened for her is someone listened along the way. Someone listened to what her needs were. Uh, we listened to what her desires were at the time and now. And someone brought down the barriers. Uh, when we don't listen, that automatically puts up a barrier. And that's the very first thing we have to do as an industry is just start listening. Uh, numbers are one thing. What are you doing listening mm-hmm. to those numbers? Are you aware of the power, of the purchasing power? Are you aware of the business savvy? Are you aware of just what we do in a golf course if we listened a little bit to make it a little more friendly, a little bit more warm and inviting? That's all it really takes. Mm-hmm. We, we can do a better job. We're, we're doing a better job at it every day across the board but we can always do a better job at this regardless of what that number might be. Right. Well said. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit, um, Paul, I'm going to actually lead you into this next question, which sort of piggybacks on what John was just talking about purchasing power. And I want to read a, a couple of more stats out here. And, and the reason why I'm reading these stats is because I, I want not just for, for us to, to understand um, as we approach this topic tonight, but I want the listeners, particularly those in the the, uh, the golf industry who may be, you know, tuning in tonight, uh, to really let the, these numbers resonate, uh, resonate, excuse me, in uh, in their thoughts and as they apply it to their own businesses. So, you know, when you talk about purchasing power, um, you know, now um, women are contributing uh, again nearly 50% to household income. Uh, because many women have careers now where, unlike before, where many of them were stay-at-home, uh, more and more are getting out into uh, the workforce and uh, now even in running uh, successful businesses. So women account traditionally um, a very, very high percentage, obviously, of, of grocery purchase. In fact, 93%. So that tells you right there. Six, these are some that I, I wasn't as aware of. Um, 66% of personal computer purchases are by women. 80% of healthcare purchases are, are by women, and 65% of new car purchases are by women. Now, 
I know those are not directly related to the golf industry, Paul, but there is obviously an undervalued uh, and underestimated marketplace there um, that I think the golf industry could tap into. Um, they have, um, and I'm going to get into one one more quick uh, stat here. Let me just run back up, and I want to mention this. Um, according, this is to the U.S. Census Bureau, single childless women ages 22 to 30 in most U.S. cities have a higher median income than their male counterparts, in some cases as high as 118%, which means they've got money to spend. This is an opportunity, I believe, for the golf industry to take notice and say, um, not only because we know ourselves that golf can certainly help um, cultivate opportunities in the business world, but also it may be an opportunity for the golf industry to redirect some of their marketing efforts. Maybe touch on a little bit your thoughts on, on some of what I've just read. And if I need to repeat any of the stats uh, for reference, um, by all means, just ask. But what do you think about what I just said? Well, I think uh, the stats are really, um, you know, provide, I guess, a stark background. You know, I knew that women made most of the consumer uh, decisions in most households, but I, I don't think I completely appreciated you know how just how much based on the stats that you just read as far as computer right. purchases and car purchases and um and i think uh you know with the exception of maybe what's happening right now just by luck with covid in a kind of a strange way that it's one of the things that few things that people have been able to do and we're seeing this growth in the game uh, until very until recently, the game really wasn't doing very well at all. Um, mm. And I think um, we've the game has been tra- very traditional. It's been oftentimes very exclusive, and that also is meant you know in a kind of an exclusionary way, right? And uh, things have gotten more progressive, um, but. You know, women haven't necessarily been made to feel welcome at golf clubs and golf courses, uh, just in in a similar way that oftentimes juniors aren't made to feel welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really imperative uh, for the for the golf industry to to hear those numbers and uh, and start catering to the people who are making consumer decisions. Um, for the for the vast majority of American households, if we want the game to prosper, uh, and if we want to be uh, inclusionary and keep up with mm-hmm. the things that are happening in the in the country, um, because we're you know as a country we're moving more in that direction than the opposite direction, um, and I think uh, I think one of the things that can really help is is just creating uh, entry-level programs that are available at public access facilities as well as private facilities um, and really trying to grow the the offerings for women specifically um, because I, I my experience is that they they're kind of lacking and public facilities is where the game really gets grown um, and and I think we need to uh, pay close attention to those numbers that you just read, Ted, because they're kind of amazing to me um, and start uh, shifting 
shifting the way we uh, market the game, uh, frankly. Right. Well said. Well, <laughs> excuse me. There's an old saying, you don't know what you don't know. And it's a very powerful statement because, you know, a lot of times we don't sometimes understand, you know, we look through a different lens a lot of times when, when we view things that are going on around us, uh, as we've all come to discover. And, you know, Jamie, one of the other things, which is kind of interesting, and again, um, you know, these numbers may fluctuate a little bit. Uh, you know, again, the study was done a few years ago, but it is generally pretty, pretty consistent. Uh, and this was uh, this next set of numbers, and, and I'm going to pose my question to you on this. Uh, in the last five years, for every man who quit playing golf, which we know there are a number of reasons, some could be out of frustration, some could be uh, be their age and, and ability um, maybe is, is not up to snuff, um, whatever that reason being. For every man who quits playing the game of golf, three women have left the game. And what's interesting, if we go back to the original stat that I talked about, the potential 90, let's say 90 to 100 million people that have an interest and 40, maybe 45 percent, um, let's say, uh, giving if we, we pump it up a little bit more, uh, are women who are interested in playing the game. This stat is very, very shocking to me. And this was put up by the National Golf Foundation. 19.3 percent uh, of all golfers are female. That's less than 20 percent. 16.6% uh, of all, round, all golf rounds played are played by women. So that's d despite the fact that there is a strong, strong interest, there's a very, very low participation rate and also a very high exit rate by women, three to one. That number alone tells me something isn't right. What do you think about the numbers I just read here? And, and what can we do to turn that around to increase those percentages of female golfers and numbers of round played? Um, you know, is it, is it a, a systemic problem? Is it just a matter of not, of not having adequate accessibility? What do you think the problem is? And what does that number represent to you for every man, three women are leaving the game. Well, first of all, I just want to um, appreciate you for the research you've done and, and bringing out not just the statistics, but the, uh, some of mm -hmm. the significance of the statistics. So, um, you know, bringing out the that gap between the, say, 42%, I believe you said, um, uh, yes. out of uh, 90 million uh, uh, people interested in golf are women, and yet less than 20% are playing the game are, are really out there. So, you know, the big question is what's up with that gap? Why does that exist? And so I think that that's, that, that's just really important to bring that out and to question that. So a, a couple things, one, you say it's systemic. So part of this, this systemic issue, I think is the fact that women are, in the workforce a lot more. We know that. At the same time, women still have the preponderance of responsibilities at home in terms of, you know, cooking, mm -hmm. raising the kids, et cetera. And it's still kind of looked at that men, you know, men help. <laughs> and so if you have an involved dad or an involved <laughs> husband, like, you know, you, you know, good on you, right? But it's not as though that is taken as a 50-50 thing yet by any means. So women are struggling right. as it is with work-life balance. 
uh, or work home balance, shall we say. And so, you know, then where is the time to play golf? And we know that golf is time consuming. And if you're newer to the game, it's even more time consuming. So if you didn't grow up playing golf and, you know, more boys and girls uh, who are now men and women uh, grow up playing golf and, you know, the guys are in the game uh, business-wise and you know, all that sort of thing. So, you know, I mean, who's the first person that's going to be able to leave on Saturday or leave after work to go play golf, the man or the woman? Uh, you know, the mom or the dad, the husband or the wife, right? And so I think that you have to look at that. So where do women really have the time um, to be playing golf or to be learning the game, coming into the game? I think that's a really, really big factor. Um, So, you know, I don't think we can get away from those kinds of issues when you're looking at just the the sort of basics of of, of time availability, right? Um, And then, Mm -hmm. you know, golf is time-consuming, golf is expensive, if golf hasn't been kind of in your, your DNA and your genes, which it hasn't for generations uh, mm-hmm. with women as it has been for men, um, you know, it's, it's going to take more to sort of uh, start up to get going in the game. Um, and then we know that golf is, tends to be a, you know, a, a bit frustrating to learn. It's not that easy to pick up. There are a lot of other activities that you can do that you're going to have more success more quickly. Um, and so the attrition rate then that you're pointing to basically that three women leave for every man who leaves the game. And we know that we have a big problem with the attrition rate in golf. Um, I mean, we've been trying to grow the game and I'm not sure the current statistics, but it was always roughly kind of 3 million in 3 million out every year. <laughs> you know, if we get 3 million mm-hmm. new golfers, that's awesome. But we've also got about 3 million leaving. And again, I'm not sure what that current is, but I mean, we've barely been holding our own if, if that, and if we've got three new women golfers that we were able to even get to begin to play and to, to take some of the beginners programs or start to get involved in, um, well, we said the Executive Women's Golf Association, it's known to the LPGA, the Amateur uh, Women's Golf Association, you know, various programs and programs at uh, private or public mm-hmm. facilities. Um, and we've also been uh, really working to grow the numbers in the T, uh, teaching division in the LPGA since I've been in. I think we've gone from 1,200 up to about 1,800. Women tend to like to do work with women pros and to do better, particularly in the beginning. So, you know, we're working on that. And still, given all of the pressures, and we know that stress and uh, financial stress and work stress and the, just the number of hours, that's been going up in America, not down. So the amount of disposable mm-hmm. time, much less income, is not really that available to women. Um, and so, therefore, you know, we're having either a higher attrition rate or a lower entry rate even for women as, as compared right. to, to men. So those are some of the factors I would think of. Yeah, and, and that's a, those are some uh, equally, again, some great points, Jamie, because you're exactly right. There's, a, there's certainly a lot of factors, and we're not going to solve everything here tonight. But I, I think it's an important discussion to have because I think as we move forward now, you know, as a result of things like COVID and, and, and other issues that have gone on, we have to really take stock of things. If we truly want, you know, we, 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 we've heard this term go around for, for quite some time, you know, growing the game, and, and we all want to do that in, 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 you know, many capacities. But I think we have to really take stock of things and, and recognize that there are some areas where some changes need to be made. And John, I'm going to put this on you. I'm going to read again just a couple of things. They're not stats, but I think for any facility, um, for any general manager or 
um, uh, even in the pro shop and so forth, I think really um, need to take note of, of some things I'm going to mention here. So I would recommend, um, and I know they do this on a continual basis, but to, to walk around the facility, and these are some questions that, uh, or items that, that really um, need to take stock of, and then I want to get your comments on that, um, is uh, directional signage. Take note of the style and messaging placement of your signage. Uh, is it effectively communicating to all your customers in a way they can understand? So is it very general, uh, very easy to understand? Um, any signage there that people know where to go or people understand what it is you're, you know, you're providing in your facility? Uh, customer greeting as well, describing the way your staff greets customers, note body language, demeanor. That's extremely important. Uh, first impressions when people walk into a pro shop, uh, and, and this goes on to the next one, golf shop as, as well, you want to look around the merchandise. Is it, you know, is it uh, a, an overall good placement of um, uh, products and that that is, is balanced for both men and women? Because uh, that's important. Food service as well. Taking a you know a healthy mix of foods, not just your your traditional what's normally associated with with, with the the, the um, uh, members clubs, but um, that's something that's become very important. And particularly for women, are very very health conscious, much more so than men. Promotional items, I- imagery, and things like that. Cleanliness is another one, and staff is extremely important. Um, what makes up uh, you know what makes up who makes up excuse me your staff? Notice diversity. Um, John, I want you to touch on, you don't have to go through every one, but just maybe an overall theme. This is something that I think clubs need to really take and pay special attention to because one of the criticisms that I've heard from many, many women is when they walk into a facility that it's not inviting for them as it is for the men. Number one, um, the signage is very, very confusing, especially if they're new to golf. And also, they want to see more representation that makes them feel that, they're welcome to the club. If everybody that works there is all men, then they don't feel the diversity that it's an equal opportunity for them to come in and, and experience that. Touch on those uh, a little bit and, and give me your thoughts um, on what we can do um, generally. And is that something that you think is um, been going on for a while, changing those changes uh, happening already? I would sum up all those as common sense best practices, whether it's a male or female, what are you doing to make your facility warm and inviting in particular to the new player? Uh, that, that right there sends a message that we're thinking of you. Uh, this, this is your home for the next four and a half to five hours. Uh, that's some of the best outside service personnel I've ever worked with thought of the golf cart as, hey, it's their home for the next four hours. Uh, Let's make it warm and inviting. Let's make sure everything is there and putting its place and it's clean. Uh, The signage to get to that cart. A lot of facilities do a really good job of this. And the ones that are perceived as not doing a good job are typically the ones that are being more reactive. Uh, maybe right. there's there's some uh, there's a hole in the roof, or or uh, a fryer went down in the kitchen, and we're right in the middle of the season. Uh, we've got a disease in the greens. We've got to get that going. It's always a constant reaction, and as you get caught up in these reactions, you forget about the proactivity that's required of any business. 
uh, retail business, brick and mortar, and that's truly what a golf course is, to have it feel like a home. Unlike other retail businesses, uh, there are some department stores, Nordstrom comes to mind right off the bat early in their history, it was okay for you to sit around there four, five, six hours. That's what they were wanting you to do. They sold more goods that way, but their service was out of the park. They, they hit home runs all the time. At the end of the day, what you're really talking about there is what are we doing from a service value standpoint of view to not only have women feel more welcome, but just new golfers in general feel more welcome. I think we have to take the gender and race bias off of this and look at it in a more holistic way. For us to sustain ourselves, we have to create 0.1 more golfer than who we are now. So if you look at it, hey, can I give 10% more of who I am as an operator or who I am behind the counter? That's all it really Mm -hmm. takes. I will say Something that I've noticed recently, uh, my facility put a female in the shop. She's wanting to become a PGA professional. Uh, Very much a go-getter. Great personality. She's been in there maybe three months. I've seen enough tickets, females, that are either A, playing, or B, they're sticking around the the grill and having something to eat while they're waiting for someone to finish playing. There is a positive to having a balance of staff, both in the pro shop and in the other places at your facility. Uh, it's as as any employer would say, they've got to pick the right people for the right mix. It's got to be a good fit. And I'm not here to say you shouldn't be doing that. I agree with that. But if you're making an effort mm-hmm. to seek a balance that's warm and inviting. I think the numbers are there. You're not going to see it immediately. You will see it over time, and you have to stay the course. And if you stay that course, there's some facilities that have done it early on. They have an incredible track record of bringing in new golfers, but most importantly, retaining them for the simple reason they're using common sense, and they're inviting people into their homes. This This is your home for four or five hours. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. Get something out of the refrigerator. Make yourself at home. Sit down. Whatever the case may be. I think if we take a more personal approach that way to golf, uh, I know I have with my coaching business. Uh, I've got chairs under the tent. I've got drinks there. I've got you name it. It's there. And I know that's the home of my clients for the duration they're with me. Uh, It's very good for my business. I think you take a small page of that. You can grow your business, but most importantly, you can maintain the roles of golfers that are going to frequent your facility most often. Right. All right. Exactly. Well said. Paul, you know, one of the things, and, you know, we've, we've kind of touched on it here a little bit, but is, is how we market um, golf and, and what's truly um, you know, how well do we know our customers? And, and what a lot of facilities, as John mentioned, you know, they're, uh, we're seeing more and more women starting to come into pro shops uh, in other areas um, besides just traditional service areas in, in facilities. Um, and 
even some clubs have, in, in fact, even hired more women on their boards uh, just to get their input and feedback. And there's a lot of things that, that you know, generally speaking, that, that women look for in an experience. Number one, they want to be treated with, with dignity and respect. So when they come to facility, they want to feel welcomed. They want to feel, you know, as I said, that, that um, they're getting a, a sort of a special invitation uh, to come there and not feeling intimidated. Um, they also want to make sure that, uh, you know, cleanliness is important as well. If they go into different parts of the facility, they want to know whether it's the restrooms or not. They want to know that they're being taken care of. Um, and they want just as much as, as the next person, they want to kind of escape for a few hours and do something that's fun. Uh, and they're also about comfort. They want to know that, again, it's a, a comfortable, a relaxed, a warm, inviting experience. And I think the dynamics have changed with couples as well. You know, years ago, uh, traditionally with married couples, um, you know, the, the husband went one way and the wife went one way doing different activities. He might go and play golf. She might get together with, with, with friends and do different uh, activities. And then they would, you know, come together and, and uh, you know, on holiday and things like that. But more and more couples, as they start to develop now, want to do more things together. And golf is a great opportunity. And I think this is why you're seeing... Um, in fact, I know why you're seeing uh, an uptick in interest by women is not just from the, the advantages from business, but also wanting to spend more time with their partners. And traditionally, again, it's, it's for the, many years has been a male dominated sport. Women want to f- play a, a, a more closer role with their spouse in, in those types of activities. So uh, again, how do you feel can we do uh, as an industry, or you even as a coach, to market that experience to say, okay, you know what? Instead of looking at it, you come take lessons and you come take lessons. How can we do something to make it more of a family affair, if you will? Uh, well, it's interesting, Ted. You know what? While we're talking about the subject, and uh, Jamie and John were having a chance to talk, you know, one of the things that came into my mind was um, how it really also kind of takes. Uh, in a sense, a gamble on the part of ownership of a facility to employ teachers who can teach people how to play the game and uh, make it so that everybody wants to be there, um, be at the golf course as much as possible. That means expanding junior programs. Uh, it means expanding uh, programs for women. Uh, expanding programs for families uh, to play together. And, uh, you know, uh, personnel, one of the most expensive parts of a golf operation. Um, and so it, it does take, there's only so much that a, that a staff can do when you have uh, one or two assistant pros, the head pro, <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. and, and you're running 150 rounds a day. Um, and so to, to invite everybody into the game and to make it a place where families are going to be able to, uh, spend entire days at the club because everybody knows how to play. Um, and, and there's a place for everybody at the facility. There's an activity, there are junior tournaments, there are cancer clinics or coaching programs available honestly need more qualified teachers and, and, uh, and golf pros working at the facility to make sure all those things can happen. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think as a, 
as far as teaching families go, you know, I, I'm right now running programs, coaching programs where I have, uh, you know, a teenage daughter, uh, maybe a 10 year old daughter, mom and dad all involved in kind of a a coaching program together where I spend time with each of them separately. And then we go out onto the golf course and we play together. Um, and they get to see me play a little bit, uh, and, uh, get to learn from how, uh, you know, learn some of the things that I've learned from playing golf for the last 32 years or, or so. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can help them (laughs) feel comfortable at the facility. Um, and, and learn how to play the game and, and make it so that they can all function together um, and, and do it as a family. So I think offering as many, uh, as many options as you can uh, along those lines and offering uh, instructional programs for really everybody in the family so that they can feel comfortable and enjoy the game is going to be a real, real big piece of this. Uh, again, well said. You know, just to touch on a few of the points, um, Jamie, that that we've talked about here tonight. Um, you've all brought up in some way, shape, or form many of the things I'm about to mention. And you know, here are some key things that um, that women value, or we all really value, but um, women particularly value, um, and some of the barriers, and also what some of the opportunities are. Time. Uh, under the value categories, there's five of them really: uh, time, friendship, learning, belonging, and shopping. Um, you know, women really look at all of those when they make their decisions. Um, golf, as we know, one of the barriers can be very time-consuming, especially when you're multitasking. You've got a full-time job or even a part-time job, and then you've got responsibilities when you get home. The other uh, issue is. Um, you know, we all enjoy uh, having friends and, and creating and developing friendships. Um, sometimes in certain situations, having a lack of other women to play with to, to make them feel more uh, com- uh, comfortable. Uh, and learning uh, can be difficult. Uh, golf can be very intimidating for the best of them. Um, but particularly for women that are not familiar with the game, they're unfamiliar with that game. So we, you know, we have to do the best we can to educate. And then a sense of belonging. We all want that, um, you know, that sense of belonging. And sometimes, again, depending on the, the first impressions, um, it can come across sometimes as an unwelcoming environment. And then obviously, uh, on the last one, shopping, not that they're going to do all their major purchases at the golf shop, but um, sometimes there's a lack of golf merchandise that hits those sweet spots for them. So as we sort of wrap up tonight's discussion here in, in the next few minutes, I'm going to give each of you an opportunity um, again, to touch on, on some of those things. Um, what are some things first off, Jamie, with the time, um, you know, what can we do? Um, we want to be able to create and offer some fun and time saving formats. Um, not everybody can play 18 holes. Not everybody can play nine holes. Is it time? Do you think for the industry to come up with some other options um, for the busy consumer and and particularly for women who don't have as much time in some cases? What are are your thoughts there in time? Well, I think this has really been an issue that's facing the golf industry in general, um, that that golf's just very time-consuming, and and along with that, you know, kind of expensive. So um, 
and a lot of people have been talking about, can we have three hole options or six hole options or even nine holes, right? But I mean, is that in a sense, is that kosher? Is it still golf? Can we um, kind of play with golf in those kinds of ways? We're so used to, you got to play nine or 18 holes. Um, so I think that's a, a, a question in general. And I think that it's also one um, for sure, specifically for women, because time is so short as I talked about earlier. Um, and, you know, to, for there to be, say, a, a, a two-hour event um, that is available once or twice a week that women can go to, I think it would be a good idea, it is a good idea to incorporate fitness because, for example, you know, um, people do carve out, women do carve out or are able to carve out um, an hour or two to go to a fitness class or a yoga class or a, a Zumba class or whatever it might be. If you can get your fitness uh, with golf, learn the game of golf, have social time, be outdoors, uh, and maybe go play three holes, right? So you're learning the game, you're getting to play, you're with others, and I think it's really important to incorporate the fitness aspect um, so that, you know, all those things can be met at once. I think if we start to develop some kinds of programs like that, um, that we would start to maybe make some more inroads. Um, to the point about family time, uh, I know when I was growing up, it was a different era, and in fact, uh, the family, making golf sort of a family affair really helped, right? Um, because we were mm-hmm. all there together. My parents were playing, or uh, kids were playing, or we were playing all together. Um, you know, we don't really have those kinds of situations so much anymore. And it turns out that uh, for even for junior golfers, golf has gotten so competitive. So then parents, and often women, end up spending their time, you know, kind of, and their money driving their kids around <laughs> to, to um, play golf right. or play soccer, whatever the, the sport might be. No, those are realities if you're looking about at I mean, time available. Once again, the division of uh, sort of labor <laughs> between uh, if you're looking at families that are a traditional, um, you know, mom-dad kind of family, um, we've got to look at that, that division of labor. There are a lot of single women, gay women, who are playing golf and, um, you know, right. having opportunities there where those aren't necessarily the considerations, but you're looking at, um, and also business women to to provide opportunities to to learn to play to get better at the game to be um, prepared to play in charity golf events or business golf events and those sorts of things um, and to just have a social time a good time and I know that there are um, there have been organizations and they've been really successful in providing playing opportunities say on a on a weekend for single women or for gay women and that those things are really important. Um, and when you're looking at women, not everybody is, um, you know, uh, is a mom or, you know, in that sort of situation. So right. I think we have to look at, at all of these things. And I do think that time is definitely a consideration. And as I said, to me, some of the optimal ways or optimal kind of um, um, events, clinic type events, would be incorporating the fitness element, the social element, and getting out on the golf course element. But that isn't the full nine holes or 18 holes. Right. And uh, again, well said. There's, there's also been, um, uh, you know, uh, stores and uh, pro shops and all have, um, you know, created events where um, on the, the shopping part of things. And shopping also has to do not just with shopping, but with really understanding golf equipment and what is needed, um, mm-hmm. on the, you know, clubs and, and clothing and shoes and all of that. And, you know, that's something that's important as well. And those are, those are really nice events, and they bring women in, and they prepare women to be at the golf course. 
Right. Yeah. And that's that's extremely important as well as uh, again, that's part of sort of falls under the intimidation uh, side of things as well is if you're coming uh, and that can be for men or women. But if you're coming to a facility and you're not really, um, you know, golf savvy, shall we say, it can be very intimidating. You walk into a pro shop. There's a lot of stuff there. You know, what's used, what's not used. Is it just for dressing, you know, window dressing, sort of speak? I mean, again, if you're not familiar with the game. Um, John, another thing too, just going on on the accessibility to courses, you know, do we need to rethink? Um, and certainly, we want to have some of these beautiful facilities that we have, and 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 when people do have the the time, but do we maybe to, to need to rethink our our future development of golf courses? And in addition to continuing to develop and build um, some great uh, tracks to play on. Um, not everybody has time to play, you know, a course that's 7,200 or, or even 7,000 yards or, or beyond. Do we need to factor in maybe bringing in more par three or executive style courses that people can get around even 18 holes or even nine holes in a little over an hour? Um, is that an option that needs to be rethought? And, and I know there's plenty out there, but maybe we, do we need more in this changing times? Uh, we can certainly do that. Anything creative that allows what little bit of time people have to engage in the game and do it conveniently, I think is a really good step in the right direction. All other sports have these entry levels in. And golf's been very traditional as far as how you got in. Um, I have a client who lives about two hours from me, actually bought it. She moved from up north and bought a home in a community that has just that. It's a nine-hole par three community, and she has a ball. She's out there every day after work playing, practicing, bought herself a golf cart. She's part of the regular group of people who play every Saturday for a little bit of skin money. She's, She's just enjoying herself, and it's a very relaxed atmosphere. Anything that can happen along that line, I think, is a step in the right direction. Uh, I've had a conversation with Reese Jones last year and Beth Page where he's redesigning courses with those things in mind and really talking to facility owners about that, that that in order for you to have a, a very good business model, a manageable and profitable, successful business model, there's got to be a few more T's put in uh, where the hazards are still in play. The various elements of golf course architecture are still there where a beginner can experience them, male or female, yet still enjoy the game. Uh, I think the, the days of building golf courses that are exclusively long, which eliminate like we said, 42% of the people that are interested. Uh, as we as we go forward, I think we're going to see that change. It's a gradual change. It doesn't happen overnight. It's like turning a dimmer switch, but at least it's being turned in that direction. Yeah, I, I think we. I think that's uh, you know again some some great points. Um, you know, we certainly don't want to detract entirely from what we you know know as as sort of our traditional golfing roots but i think you know i i know jamie as as you did um and and paul and and john i'm sure you've had similar experiences growing up you know when i grew up we we didn't have you know as many 
uh, resort courses and and championship courses. Uh, in fact, we we played in some cases, uh, you know, at our local public courses. Uh, in some cases, uh, that were run by either a municipality or city, uh, and or you know, executive style courses. I mean, I for one, that's what I learned on uh, growing up, and you know, um, you could get around them pretty easy, and uh, you know, compared to that. And I think you know, that's uh, again, as John pointed out, Paul, you know, having some of that entry level, um, I think, might be a way. Uh, and I know there's a lot of other products out there that that try to simulate that, but I, I really think this is a direction that golf is, in general needs to go to, uh, is, is to start looking at, um, let's find an entry point, get people into the game that's less intimidating, that's um, easier to um, accomplish. You know, there's some great programs out there we've talked about over over the years where, you know, instead of playing tee to green, we play green to tee. In other words, playing the short game, focusing on that and learning how to score um, before we worry about how far we can drive it. So there's a lot of great things that we can do to make it less intimidating for people. Um, Paul, any final thoughts or, or, or comments that you'd like to make on, on what we've been talking about here tonight? Anything that caught your ear in, in the last hour that maybe you want to touch uh, on a little bit as well? I just think that uh, any any level of innovation that we can bring to solve these problems and bring, and bring women, um, really anybody into the game who wants to play, it's it's time and we have an opportunity right now uh, where there are a lot of people who are uh, who may have just dabbled in golf uh, at one mm-hmm. point and took a long break and are now coming back to it because it was one of the few activities they could do. Um, or maybe uh, are completely brand new to golf and uh, we have an opportunity to keep them in the game and and make it something that they're going to continue to do and and make part of their lives. Um, I definitely believe that any new golf course that's being built um, should have loops uh, built into it, basically, where uh, it it is not that hard to play a three-hole loop or a six-hole loop um, so, so people can get their golf experience, however, whatever, for, for whatever duration of time they, they have for them that day, they can, they can go out and have a chance to go play some holes. Um, I know that coaching and, uh, group programs can be a really great way to provide a golf experience in a short period of time. Um, and making those kinds of programs available at public facilities will make a big difference too. Um, and I agree, Ted, that golf courses have gotten too hard and, and I grew up on two Parkland style public golf courses in Chicago, uh, that Mm -hmm. I loved and they weren't, uh, you know, I think the 18 hole course had a par 69 and it was just barely over 6,000 yards. And, uh, you know, I, I love playing that course. Um, so Mm -hmm. you could at least you could miss it two fairways over and still find your golf ball. So it, it helps when, uh, it helps when things are easier and, uh, gives you a chance to kind of latch on. And if the game's welcoming and, uh, people are made to feel, uh, welcome and at home, like John said, I think, I think we'll all be in good shape. Yeah. Well said. Well, let me just say in closing, um, before I give you each uh, a brief moment to to let the folks know how to reach you out, um, 
you know, re- really the, tonight's discussion was was not, um, you know, to point out areas necessarily of improvement that that could happen, but risk to to really cause us all to focus on um, ways that we can uh, create more opportunities for people to play this great game. We all understand we have, you know, have been very blessed to be in the profession that we are and and get access to some of the, you know, the the best facilities out there. And, you know, we want to, uh, you know, share the love as it were. And I think what we need to do is, is as many um, suggestions have been made tonight is, is to, you know, just um, look at the facility as a whole. How can we improve it? How can we make it a more um, enjoyable experience for everybody? And what can we do as an industry to um, offer other opportunities that we maybe are not doing right now to and, and make it more and welcoming and inviting for um, particularly um, our, our female uh, enthusiasts to want to adapt to the game. Um, the less intimidating, the less um, you know uncertainties that there are involved in it, the more apt that they're um, going to take a, a stronger interest. And with those numbers uh, being what they are, and we just sort of touched on a few of them, um, you know th- that's an opportunity we cannot afford a, in any industry, but particularly in a golf industry, to miss. Um, you know, so um, great, great discussion tonight. I know it's a little different than probably what you imagined, but I think it's. I think you know we we have to be able to to have these discussions in the industry, and I couldn't think of a better place to do it than on the panel tonight. So I want to thank you guys, um, and we'll go in the continued order again. Jamie, if you want to let the folks know how they can reach out to you, uh, and then John, and then Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for this um, topic and for all of your research and, and statistics. It's been great um, and, and talking with you guys. Um, so people can reach me at Jamie, J-M-I-E, at T-I-Golf.com, K-I-A-I, Golf.com. Um, and I always say um, I actually answer the phone. <laughs> I like to talk to people. 760-492-GOLF, 4653. Um, and I just, just want to add one more point, which is uh, there's so many ways that we can practice at home. I've actually developed a lot of uh, home-based practice, fitness, swing development, short game stuff you can do in your backyard, uh, putting obviously at home. And with COVID, people are looking for ways to, um, you know, practice, work on their game at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm happy to consult with people. I, I've done a few uh, family golf lessons online. And so I think that there's a lot we can do about developing golf skills at home. And this is the perfect time to do that. Right. Great job. John, go ahead. Uh, real easy, John Hughes Golf, johnhughesgolf.com, on Twitter, John Hughes Golf, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, it's really easy. Uh, be looking later this summer, I'm a, I just started a project, I'm going to keep a little secret, but it builds on one that I let out in April that I'm super excited about. Uh, reach out to me if you're ever in Central Florida. Uh, if you need any remote coaching, that's available as well. And thanks again, Ted, for the honor of being on. Always a pleasure. Uh, Jamie and Paul, again, great job. Appreciate you being on as well. All right, thank you. And last but not least, Paul, how can the folks reach out to you if they want to get in touch? Uh, just like John, my uh, my website's paulcastergolf.com. I, my, I'm on Instagram and Twitter as paulcastergolf. Um my phone number is 732-529-2222. And uh, in-person uh, coaching in my studio is going to start next week, thankfully, here in New Jersey. And um, I'm also 
I, I teach outdoors at a club um, nearby called Jumping Brook Country Club. Uh, so we do playing lessons and short game lessons there, and remote coaching is also available. Perfect. Well, guys, I want to thank you very much for joining me tonight on Coach's Corner uh, here on Golf Talk Live. Uh, again, it was a, a very interesting discussion, and I appreciate all of the thoughts and viewpoints you guys brought in. And I look forward to having you guys meet, uh, join me on the next uh, Coach's Corner next time. So um, have a safe uh, weekend, guys. Enjoy uh, your rounds and get out there and do some great teaching. Thank you, Terry. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah. Be well. Have a great night. All right. That was my uh, very special guest here on the Coach's Corner panel, uh, Jamie Leno-Zimron, John Hughes, and Paul Castor. Thank you guys for doing a great job. I appreciate it as always. All right. For those of you that um, have been to the Myrtle Beach area, you're probably very familiar uh, with some of these great tracks. And you might even be familiar with my very special guest this evening. Uh, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about his business. His uh, business is Mystical Golf. Uh, Myrtle Beach has always been a, about uh, value golf, but uh, the low price has sometimes meant a low-quality experience. Uh, but Mystical Golf uh, shatters that myth with its trio of excellent uh, courses and some amenity-laden packages. And with flights, uh, direct flights from uh, LaGuardia, it's an easy trip for Westchester golfers uh, as well. Simply put, we offer the best stay-and-play packages in the U.S., uh, says uh, the owner and CEO of Mystical Golf, Claude Pardue. He is uh, my special guest tonight, and his three courses uh, that uh, we're referring to is the Wizard, the Witch, and Man of War uh, that were designed by architecture uh, architect excuse me, Dan Maple. So please welcome my very special guest tonight on Golf Talk Live, Claude Pardue. Good evening, Claude, and welcome Thank to you. Golf Talk Live. Thank you for having me. All right, I appreciate it. special. Well, I, I appreciate it. I'm glad to have you. Now, I have been out, uh, and it's been a little while, since uh, a few years since I've been out uh, your way, uh, but I am familiar with your, your properties there, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, about them. But I thought we, what we would do first is just just go back a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, before we get into uh, sort of the, the meat of tonight's discussion, and, and that is when you first started playing golf yourself when did you first sort of get introduced to the game uh, at what age and and what was your your initial experience oh uh, I started playing golf when I was about seven years old my dad loved it and uh, he actually mm. got me into the game and uh, I started then and I have just like a lot of people in my time I had five or six friends that they were starting too so we kind of grew up playing golf together and uh, so it yeah. was more of a natural thing than anything else. Yeah, so many. I'm very much like you. My father, uh, in fact, it was uh, a little bit before that, but pretty pretty close to, to your age as well at the time. And, uh, you know, he introduced me to the game and, and taught me the, the basics and the fundamentals and, and, you know, let me grow and nurture from there. And, you know, here I am many decades later still enjoying this great game. So I, I owe him that uh, oh, that debt of gratitude, if you I've, will. Yeah. I think that Go happened ahead. when you and I were growing up a lot more than it does today, unfortunately. I'm, yeah, I'm I, not sure you know, if, uh, if that's progressing the same way. No, I don't think – I mean, there's certainly – you're exactly right in your analogy. I think what it is, you know, there are so many activities now. And, then, you know, we've always had baseball and football and, 
and soccer and many other sports uh, there and, and, you know, entrenched, well entrenched in the school systems. Um, golf obviously was not one until you got a little bit further along uh, in your education where, you know, um, some high school, but uh, particularly collegiate golf, of course, is, is big in, in many states and areas. Um, but you're right. Uh, you know, if, if you didn't have a golfer in your family, like you're usually in most case initially, you're, back then it was your dad and, and uh, sometimes your mom and dad. But, um, yeah, you, you didn't really get introduced to the game until a little bit much later in life. So let's yeah, the fast other, forward. The many, other thing that – Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. The other ahead, thing please. that uh, nope. happened when I was a kid and, um, and that didn't happen when my – I've got a son who's 35 now, but when he was a kid uh, – I played basketball and and I water skied with my other two sports when I was growing up. Well, basketball, we started basketball practice uh, the 1st of November. And when I was a little kid uh, in Pee Wee and whatever other, uh, you know, leagues I played in. And then you were done in March when my son, who loved basketball, was playing basketball. He played uh, for whatever team during the winter, and then he played AAU ball in the spring, and then he played his traveling teams during the summer and playing sport. And he also played football and baseball. It's it's an all-consuming sports when your kids are growing up now. Right. Uh, we played golf because whatever sport we played was just a three or four month sport, and uh, uh, we played golf because we had the time to play golf with our dads or whatever. Shoot a kid today who mm-hmm. picks up a sport. It's a 12-month thing. And his dad right. involved with him with that, too, taking him all over the place to play. And stuff. That wasn't there when we were growing up. No. No, you're exactly right. Um, you know, I uh, I grew up uh, much further north, and, and you know, we had uh, hockey in the winters and, you know, golf in the summers. Uh, our summers were obviously much shorter. Our season, our golf season was, was certainly much shorter than what, you know, we enjoy down here in the South now. But, um, you know, so we were we were lucky to get out and, and, and get the golf that we could before the, the cool winds, uh, you know, made it uh, so that it was so difficult. I want to just read something real quick, um, Claude, and then I, I want to, you know, get into uh, about your business and that. But as I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago, uh, your, your courses uh, as part of the Mystical uh, Group, uh, was uh, designed by Dan Maples, um, and they are, mm-hmm. again, the Wizard, the Witch, and, and Man of War. Uh, each one uh, offers a different and challenging style of layout. Uh, the Witch was awarded four and a half stars by Golf Digest, while the Man of War and the Wizard uh, each uh, earned four, respectively. And the trio uh, is consistently recognized by Golf Channel as among Myrtle Beach's five best golf courses. So very, very high accolades. Uh, and congratulations. Uh, that's uh, uh, certainly a great honor uh, to have well, um, as a business owner. Yeah. And so I want to, I want to, again, as I fast, as we fast forward many rounds, I'm sure. Um, and we, we got to a point, there came a point and you said, okay, you know what? I'm going to start this company or I'm going to get involved in this company. However, and we'll, we'll get into that. Um, tell us a little bit about the history of mystical golf and how you got to uh, where actually, you are today. Well, thank you. Uh, we actually um, started, my, my first golf course was actually in Pinehurst, uh, actually Southern Pine, mm-hmm. which is right beside Pinehurst, for those that travel to the, the area, uh, is a golf course known as Highland Hills that I bought in 1984. 
and that was my first golf mm-hmm. course, and it was um, it, it was in pretty uh, bad financial shape, but it had a lot of play, uh, which meant that people enjoyed playing it, or they wouldn't they wouldn't have a rounds. But for a lot of reasons, it, it was having some trouble. So I bought it in uh, December of 1984, and that was our first property. And my partner at the time, a, a great individual by the name of Richard Lee, he and I bought it and uh, started running it. We needed to turn it around. And we moved our families to Southern Pines, and that was our first venture. And uh, over a period of four or five years, we took a golf course that was grossing uh, right at three hundred dollars to $400,000 a year, and we turned it into a golf course grossing a little over $2 million a year. Uh, and we did a lot wow. of things to do that, uh, but a lot of it was marketing. Uh, a lot of it was organizations that we founded, whatever. And um, then in 1987, uh, we started looking for expansion because we thought our ideals could work uh, uh, anywhere. So we found the Myrtle Beach Marketplace and how hot it was at the time, and we decided that, that we wanted to expand into that area. Um, we started looking for land in 1987 and finally found a piece of land that we wanted to build on. And I, I think I looked at probably 50 tracts of land back at that time. We were firm believers that a golf course has to have magic. It has to have something to separate it. It can't just be 18 holes. It has to have a visual. Uh, now, not all golf courses can have the visual of the Monterey Peninsula right. like Pebble Beach does, but it still has right. to have something. And with the which, we found the Waccamaw Swamp, which is a 23,000-acre swamp, and we found a piece of land that Canal Wood uh, owned that was a little over 500 acres, but it wound through the swamp. And so we decided to build there. One reason we chose Dan Maples is Dan understands that to build a golf course, it's a partnership between the owner and him that because the owner's the one that knows what he wants to market, how he wants to market, and Dan knows how to route the golf course in, in order to take advantage of all that is in the property. And I like that about Dan is it's a partnership between us to develop a golf course instead of a lot of architects want to build monuments to themselves and then they walk away right. from it and they're not the ones that have to market it operate it uh cover expenses maintain it and all the other things that have to be done for a golf course to be successful and that's why i chose dan and I actually think he's the best architect out there for that reason and so we started building. It took a year and a half to build the witch, and we opened it in uh, September 1989. And frankly, we take you on a little bit of a, a amusement ride through the swamps is the whole idea of the witch. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> I can imagine that um, would, would be a very uh, interesting ride indeed. Let me ask you, Claude, when it comes to to golf courses, and this is something I think that um, others in the industry um, quite often fall short of. Um, As you mentioned just a moment ago, you know, there are many architects out there and certainly a lot of good ones, um, but tend to want to build a monument. And, and, you know, they're beautiful to look at and got some wonderful features, but from a playability standpoint, sometimes they, they miss the mark. When you were working with Dan and and 
you know, having your discussions and so forth for the for the various uh, properties here that he's worked with you on. Was that something that you wanted to ensure that not only were they going to be, you know, attractive looking golf course and appealing to the eye and have all of the, you know, the, the points that, that you mentioned, but you also wanted to make sure that they were going to be accessible and playable for any level of golfer. Uh, yeah, that's kind of a tough thing because you there's a there's a balance that's hard to get in the golf industry between the guy who wants to take a golf vacation with his buddies but can't break 110 and then the uh, the right. person <laughs> that wants to play that are all five and six handicaps it's uh that term playability for everybody um uh it's not going to appeal it's not going to have an interest if um uh if it's not challenging and interesting enough. Sure. We try to look at what we think of as fun shots. Uh, for example, right. people don't like to heel, hit uphill shots. No matter who, whether it's a scratch golfer or a, uh, or a 30 handicapper, uphill shots are fun. Downhill shots are a ball for everybody to hit, yep. whether they're hard. Number <laughs> I would agree. Number Beach is a ball to hit because it's downhill, and uh, hitting off the side of a mountain is a ball to do. And uh, we try to get fun shots. Now, I believe that if somebody makes a golf course hard because he makes it pro-length, I think that's silly. Uh, anybody can go out there and make a golf course hard by making it 7,600 yards. So if you're talking about right. playability, we don't do that. We we want there yeah. to be the guy to have a shot that he can hit. Not that it's easy for mm-hmm. him to hit, but he has the ability to hit. If you have a 270-yard carry, 99% of your golfers can't hit that shot, even if they have a bucket of balls. But if you have a narrow right. fairway on a 200-yard carry, almost every yard – uh, or 180 yard carry, but it's a narrow landing. Almost every golfer can hit that shot, but some golfers may only hit it one in every 10 times, but he can hit that shot. So it becomes a fun shot for him, although it might not be easy for him. And that's the balance that you've got to get. Uh, a good example of this I love great, hard, short par fours. Great short right. par fours are the hardest design and build in the world, but they're so much fun and and so wonderful because everybody can play it because it's short, but it's still a hard short par four. We have one of those at number nine at the Wish that's been picked as one of the top 18 holes in South Carolina. It's only 335 yards, but it's one of the hardest par fours you'll ever play but it's got a wide fairway, and it's only 335 <laughs> to 45 yards. It's only 360 from the tips. So right. that's a great hole to me. And because, as I said, everybody can go out there and build a 465-yard par four. Everybody can do it. Right. Just draw it on a piece of paper yep. and go do it. But try to build a great short par four. That's what takes uh, brilliance from an architect, in my opinion. So using that hole as an example, what makes for a, a good quality short par four? What's, what are some of the ingredients 
that you need to have in order to make that successful? Well, I think it's different on every uh, hole, but that particular hole is built in the swamps, just like the entire front side of the witch is. But you have uh, a fairway area that's cut out with swamp all the way around it and swamplands to the left side, which is a dogleg left. Uh, because of the trees mm-hmm. on the left side, you have to hit a it's, a, it's a short par four that you have to hit a very accurate, relatively long drive, which is interesting because you have right. to hit it straight and long <laughs> enough to get it past the trees. Not one, excuse me, not one that's so long that you can't hit it if you're a decent golfer, not a great one, but a decent golfer, but you still have to hit a long, accurate drive. And then you have to hit it towards the left side of the fairway because it's got a really narrow green on the other side of the swamp. And by how it's got a wide green, but a narrow green. So you have to hit a nine iron or wedge into it, or it's so narrow that you'll hit on the green and you go off the green. It's somewhat like uh, hitting into the 12th hole at Augusta National that's so narrow. That hole right. is only, from the tips, only, what, 140 yards or whatever? It's one of the hardest par yeah. threes in the world at 140 yards because it's so narrow. And But it's fair because you're hitting into it with a wedge. And right. <laughs> if you hit a good wedge, you should be able to hit into a narrow par so it hit, makes it really fair, but it's still a really hard shot. Dan also believes, yeah. and he, he taught me this because I think he's right, the ninth hole and the 18th hole or whatever on the normal uh, golf game, that's when the bets are decided. And that's when if you have a 120-yard right. shot and you've got two presses riding and you've got to beat your buddy, that's a hard shot to hit. But it looks like it should be easy because it's sitting there right in front of you. Well, things like right. that are what separate a great hole from just building a long hole that everybody in the world can build. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. And and you know, I, I've played on a number of different courses over the years, and you know, some again were um, were were beautiful designs, but again, it was sort of the the typical run of the mill golf hole and you know after you've played that type of golf hole um time after time it, it gets a little bit old so it's it's kind of refreshing i like your approach in in you know wanting to have something that um sort of strikes the right balance of challenge um but is accessible for you know any golfer um regardless of level it's there's a little something for everybody there you be on your game but it's not so difficult that some of your higher handicappers can't get out there and have a good time as well. And that's really what it's all about. So uh, my, my next question for you, Claude, is this, and, and that is you've obviously found a, if you will, a secret sauce in, in your business. You found something that works for you um, and has made you successful in, in your own right. How do you differ from your competitors? What makes your approach to uh, with mystical golf um different from some of your other competitors, uh, particularly in, in the Myrtle Beach area? Um, I believe that you sell, when a person buys any product, you, for example, when you go buy something, mm-hmm. you use the same idea no matter what it is you're buying, whether you're buying shoes, 
a car, yep. golf, a dinner, or whatever, you use the same principle. And that principle is if you buy something that you think has a value of $100 and you get it for $80, you think you've got a great buy. If you get something mm-hmm. that you think has a value of $80 but you pay $100 for it, then you think you've got a bad buy. You buy value just like 90% of every – the stinking rich guy whose movie star makes a million dollars a year, he'll go waste money all he wants to, and it doesn't matter. But that's not my customer, Mm -hmm. and it's not the average joke, although we've had a lot of famous people love my golf courses, and that's the fun part. But but you buy based on your perceived value. I want to create right. something where we give, and uh, actually it was either Golf Magazine or Do- Golf Digest called us the best value in golf. That's music to my ears. I'm not the most expensive. Sure. I'm not the greatest golf course. Uh, Pebble Beach is my favorite golf course, but you can pick any you want to. Uh, I'm not that. But what I am is a great value. I want every customer that plays our golf course I want him to see magic. I wanted to get a golf course that, uh, for the most part, is in terrific shape for what he pays. And I want him to, when he drives out of my property, I want him to say, man, that was worth every dollar that I spent on that game of golf. And yep. then he is bought by you, just like buying a shoe, a car, or whatever. They want him, a car dealer wants him to drive off the property thinking he got the deal of the century. I want the same right. thing. I want to sell value. I want to take and either give my customer a better quality experience for the same price or give him the same experience for a cheaper price than all of my competition out there. And that's mm. what we sell. We we try to sell uh, a golf course that's much nicer in comparison to everybody else that he plays, than what he can get for the same dollar. Now, I'm not the, by far right. not the cheapest golf course, but you'd be hard pressed to find a golf course, a four and a half star golf course that you can play for the price we charge for the witch. And right. that's the point. And, and, but the witch is yeah, not and, anywhere exactly. close to the cheapest you play. No, and. You know, you're exactly right. People, people want to feel that they're receiving good value, and they're willing to pay a little bit more as long as it matches that value. And you're right. You're exactly right in your analogy and in, in your comparison. If you're buying uh, something that um, you know is is valued at $100, but you're getting it for 80, and, and vice versa, uh, those are those are great analogies. I want to ask you something else here as well. Um, Mystical Golf offers the best golf buddy packages in the U.S. What is it that you offer your guests that earns that title? Uh, it gets uh, it gets the same thing as as offering value, um, but within our golf packages, we we tailor them to golf. Uh, we if if a customer wants to uh, come and buy a golf package for all the other things that he might want, then 
he might not see our value, but if somebody truly loves golf and wants a golf package, uh, we're the ones for them. And we can get a give a golf package. But it's not just in our stay in place. We have some condos that uh, that we will sell golf packages through. All of them are three bedrooms. Mm. All of them's got four beds in them, so they're designed for foursomes. Uh, we actually have some that have five beds in them. If somebody needs a has a fivesome, but uh, we also work with uh, some of the top hotels down at the beach, uh, and they put mm-hmm. our three golf courses together. Uh, the Myrtle Beach National Properties that own twenty hotel hotels on the ocean. Uh, we work in conjunction with them, too, and you can buy our packages through them. Uh, but the people who buy our package are, are mostly – now, there are a lot of exceptions to this because our golf courses are fun and they're beautiful, and we have a fair price for them. But, uh, so we get packages from all over the world. Uh, but um, but the, mostly the people who buy my golf packages – are the real golfers. Now, they don't have to be the best golfers. Mm-hmm. They're the people who come right. to Myrtle Beach for the golf. There are a lot of people that come to Myrtle Beach for the night life. There are a lot of people that come to Myrtle Beach for all the free food that can be put in the packages, and that'll attract them more <laughs> than anything right. uh, because there's some of them that have to give away you know, a lot of meals and stuff in order to get the golfer to their golf course. But uh, our golf courses, we um, uh, are for people who the golf is the most important thing to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're the people who love our golf packages the best. Yeah, and, 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 you know, and that sort of goes on to, to my next point is, you know, there are so many great areas, uh, you know, here in the United States, uh, I obviously reside in Florida, and I know we've got some some great uh, courses along the way. And you know, you go out to west, and you know, California certainly has, and Arizona, and and so on and so forth. Uh, but for some reason, Myrtle Beach seems to come to mind to so many golfers as a great uh, and very popular golf destination. Why do you think that is? I know you've touched on a few points here just a moment ago, but why do you think Myrtle Beach stands out so much above so many other places? Uh, one one thing that um, uh, that differs with Myrtle Beach is that I think a lot of different areas, uh, and maybe it's different areas in in Florida and and out in Arizona and whatever, uh, they have uh, different levels within the marketplace. Some areas tailored to the upper end. Uh, golfer financially, right. uh, some areas tailored, whatever. Myrtle Beach, one of the greatnesses of Myrtle Beach, and I, uh, I think it's wonderful, is that we have everything. We, uh, if yeah. there's a group of golfers that work, that in order to take their golf vacations with their buddies, because they also have their family vacations and the other things, and they got to support their families. Uh, but they just want to go and be with their buddies and hit a golf ball and, and buy a beer and a hot dog and go out to a sports, a sports bar in the evening. Um, and, and that's really what they want. We're the place for them because we've got golf courses that are priced so that everybody can afford to come to Myrtle Beach. And then we've got some of the really nicest golf courses that anybody will play, like, uh, like the Man of War and the Witch and Tidewater and uh, 
uh, and the Dunes Club, and uh, that'll rank with any golf courses that are in the United States. And so we've got everything you can do. And you, the thing is, you've got a lot of people coming to our mar- uh, marketplace and uh, uh, pick and choose so that they can make their golf uh, package affordable. They can play, uh, if they're staying here for five days, they can play a Man of War and a Witch and a Tidewater and then add to it a, a, a couple of the low-end golf courses so their five-day package is affordable for them, and Myrtle Beach allows them to do that. And it's a, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's a wonderful thing because we can, we can tailor, in Myrtle Beach, we can tailor what Whatever it is you want, and we got it for you. And that's what separates Myrtle Beach from certain er- other areas that are out there. Yeah, I, I I think you're exactly right. You know, I can remember years, uh, you know, a, a number of years back, my friends and I uh, planned a, a trip to Myrtle Beach, and um, you know, you really couldn't beat it. I mean, and there's some beautiful courses all over. Um, you know, the United States and beyond. But, um, yeah, Myrtle Beach, uh, I, I would agree with that, I think, stands on its lawn for, for many of the reasons and more that you just pointed out. I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about um, your Children's Foundation. Tell us a little bit about that, um, and I know it's important to, uh, to Mystical Golf. Uh, tell us about the foundation, uh, what is the name of the foundation, and what is its purpose, what is its mission? Yeah, uh this is something that's very dear to my heart. Um, to start this story, um, I have four children that are now all grown. Um, uh, they're in their 30s, and I'm now getting grandkids. Well, uh, I dedicated my life to my kids and and my company when I started having kids. Uh, my first child was born in 83, and uh, then had them through 87 while I was starting my business. And so uh, working 50, 60 hours a week and with young kids. And uh, my wife and I moved our family to Southern Pines. Um, I didn't have any time for anything else. In fact, frankly, one of the things I gave up was playing golf because uh, I wanted to be every second that I went working, I was with my kids. And so uh, we dedicated right. my life to my kids. And so my kids started graduating. And started going off to college, and I had empty nest syndrome, about as bad as anything. So <laughs> I came up with the idea that I want, and I've I've always worked uh, with charities, and a lot of them would be charities with kids. But I did, came up with the idea that I wanted to start a foundation, and one of the reasons I wanted to start it was a little bit selfish. I wanted it to be my company's foundation and get my employees mm-hmm. involved, get them excited. We don't force them to get involved, but uh, we give right. them the opportunity to do so that we can do the things that we do. And uh, it, it started out small, and our first fundraiser was a golf tournament that we started um, the week before Christmas. And we we didn't know about the timing, but we could afford to close down two of our golf courses to start it then. And we started this in 2001. Um, and uh, that was our first fundraiser. Well, it turned out that the week before Christmas is a great time to hold a golf tournament because mm-hmm. nobody's doing anything. People don't travel till after Christmas, we found out. So right. we're, our, golf, our golf tournament has been packed ever since we started it. And uh, <laughs> our mission statement is to provide joy for kids that have no joy in their lives. 
And God has led right. us to children that are placed in treatment centers like the Lighthouse Care Facility here and the Waccamaw Youth Center here and the Seacoast Academy and the Connie Maxwell Girls Home and the uh, Lancaster Home in Lancaster, South Carolina. Uh, it, it are, these are kids that have been suffering through uh, neglect and abuse and are right. placed in these centers. Uh, the vast majority of them are suicidal. Um, they uh, get there and they think it's because they're bad people. Um, the uh, about the second or third year, I um, uh, I did our Christmas party for the Lighthouse Care Facility. I met a little girl who was in there that was uh, suffering from severe depression and suicidal tendencies because her mother tried to drown her. She was ten years old. Mm. Uh, these wow. are the kids that we're trying to do. And what we do is we go in and provide directly for the kids. The first thing we started doing is um, is we buy shoes for every kid. Now, we don't just buy shoes for them. We buy whatever shoe they want to buy. If they want to buy an Air Jordan, mm. we buy an Air Jordan. Um, <laughs> uh, and we've just grown. We also have gotten to where we provide activities uh, all year long for these kids. A lot of them get in these homes, and the homes, most of them are provided, uh, paid for by the, their fees are paid for by the state and the feds. Um, but right. there's no margin to do anything else. And they're, they're in these sterile homes that uh, have right. nothing for them to do. They're, they're safe. They really get there, and they believe they're in prison. And, and the majority of yeah. the cases, the courts have placed them in these places. So they really believe they're in prison. And there's no money there mm. for them to do anything that a normal kid would do while they're living in these homes because the government in its infinite, infinite wisdom says we don't want them to spend any money for this other stuff, like going to the movies right. or, or doing the other thing. So that's where we step in. We step in and actually provide those things we uh we buy uh, all the kids at two of the homes around here the Waccamaw youth center and the connie maxwell facility for girls we buy them season water park tickets to myrtle waves down at the beach hmm. so they can go to the water park all right. summer long we buy we bought 70 season football tickets to coastal carolina's football games so that three of the homes could take their boys and girls to the uh, college football games all fall long. We've taken them to uh, to movies once a month. We've taken them to um, uh, we've taken them to things like uh, rock and jumps where they have these trampolines where they jump on. We've taken the kids to some of these homes to state fairs. We've taken some kids from a couple of the homes in in Georgia. We take them to Six Flags over Georgia, uh, and we still provide the shoes. Uh, for all the kids at Christmas. This past Christmas, we bought 260 pair of shoes that we gave to all the kids, and, and they picked out exactly what they wanted. And that's it. Hmm. Forget the money. It's a hard logistics in order to do that. But we've done it in conjunction right. with the wonderful <laughs> people at, at Foot Locker, which have kind of partnered with us uh, in order to do right. that. Uh, we also, with the, the great people of Samaritan's Feet, um, uh, who give away shoes to kids all over the world without shoes. 
we're uh, a part of a Christmas dinner that feeds 7,000 7, homeless and sheltered people on Christmas Day. Uh, we show mm-hmm. up, and with Bruce Samaritan's feet, we give away a new pair of shoes to every kid uh, who shows up for that Christmas dinner, both in Myrtle Beach and in Anderson, uh, oh, excuse me, Andrews, South Carolina, and we gave away an extra mm-hmm. 400 pair of shoes there. Uh, we've donated shoes to other organizations that give shoes directly to kids. And what we do is we don't give a dime to any organization. We provide directly mm-hmm. to the, the kids. When when we want to take a, them to go on a trip, we pay for the trip. When we want to give them right. activity passes, we pay for the passes. We don't give money to the organizations. Uh we also take the kids in these homes, and, and let's say a kid wants to uh, play in the band. We make sure he gets an instrument. Kid wants to uh, be in the chorus. We make sure we uh, that they get their uh, uniforms. Uh, whatever school activity they want to do, uh, we provide it. One of the homes has a baseball field in back. My uh, agronomy staff went and uh, renovated the baseball field and put it into shape, and we buy gloves and bats and balls for all the kids in that home uh, so that they can have baseball games in the afternoon and an activity play. We make sure that kids get basketballs if they want to play basketball. Uh, and we do, uh, and that's what I said. What we do is we give to the kid so that that kid can have the same experience that you and my kids yeah. have. And uh, right. we, the professionals tell us that what's great for that is now they don't see the homes as prison. They see a home mm-hmm. as a place that the people around them love them, and they break down all these walls and barriers, and now the professionals can do their deal and actually impact mm-hmm. and save kids' lives. One thing, and, and I could talk forever about kids, but one thing I do nope. want to say that's really sad to me is that um, we as a country, we don't take care of our kids, period. You want to see no. all the problems you see on TV? And I promise yeah. you, after my experience for the last 20 years, it's because these kids weren't provided for when they were kids and could have been led differently. Yep. You can take every problem yeah, with anger and and everything else is because these kids weren't raised with love. And I, I yeah. could get too emotional about it, and I won't, but that's what yeah. You'll see more ads about abuse of animals, and I love my dog too. So don't all you right. dog lovers get mad at me. But you'll see more <laughs> ads about abuse of angle, uh, animals than you will abuse of our kids. Now, and it's yeah. great for those who want to do it. You'll see ads about abuse of kids in Africa or Asia or wherever. Right. But tell me the last time you saw an ad uh, that was trying to save American kids, other than the great kids, yeah. uh, great movement at St. Jude Hospital. Other than there, tell me the last time. And how many <laughs> dog yeah, ads you have don't. you seen since then? Right. And yeah, that's, you, that, that, and that's, that a, that's a great point. Do. Yeah, that's exactly a, a great point. Let me just first uh, go back for a second. Let's just say, you know, what a, what a great, great thing that you and, and your staff and, and all of the, the others involved are, are doing. You know, you're exactly right. 
we have as business owners and as adults particularly um, to, you know, especially when we've been blessed with, with good fortune, but we should do it anyways, but particularly when we've been blessed, you know, we need to reach back in our communities and it starts with the kids. It really does because you're exactly right on your point, how the development of that child you know, uh, ensuring that they have good nutrition, obviously, but ensuring that they have accessibility um, the same as other kids do makes a world of difference. There is nothing worse than, as you pointed out, growing up and not having, you know, access and you're seeing other kids who, you know, outside of your immediate environment that have these things and it, and it just, it, it weighs so heavy on their psyche. So it's, you're exactly right. It's no wonder why you know depression is is so rampant in in the youth in in this country. You're exactly right, and I applaud you and all the people aff- affiliated with your foundation um, for doing uh, a wonderful thing. And uh, obviously, well, I know that's something you're. Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, there are two more things uh, that I would like to point out. Um, uh, one of them is the absolute belief that every human being in order to get through life and even have joy in life, has to have hope. And I'm going to tell you, with kids, the way to get them feeling hope is to give them some joy. And that's an Mm -hmm. absolute, it's not just a belief, it's something I know after dealing with it for 20 years. The second thing, if there's any business owner out there and they aren't, they aren't going to believe it unless they try it. Any business owner out there that is running a business or any business manager that's running a business and he has problems with uh, attitudes among his uh, employees and motivation and whatever, go out and get you a cause and make it your business's cause. Can't imagine what that does. My my golf pros go out all summer long, and they hold golf clinics, and we bring in these kids from these homes. They would much rather do that than give a golf lesson that they're making 50 bucks for. I mean, they have a ball on Monday evenings when you're getting involved with these kids because we bring them in from a couple of homes that we do the golf clinics from, and they're volunteering their Mm -hmm. times. They love that. They get involved with our tournaments and our charities. When we uh, take them to, we take them to the Alabama Theater. Thanks to the wonderful people at Alabama Theater that uh, give us free admission to a couple of their Christmas shows, and we take these kids mm-hmm. and all my employees get involved and everything else. And I'm going to tell you, all of a sudden, their job has a different meaning other than just being there on time doing your job function and going home. And and I would strongly tell every business out there, if you want to improve morale in your company, go find a mission that your company can do outside of your company and get all your people involved. And all of a sudden, their whole job and their whole company will have a different feeling for them. Yeah, it it changes one's attitude towards life in general. And you're exactly right. And I think that's a great, um, you know, some some great words of wisdom because, you know, you know, we all want to do well in our careers and we all want to, um, you know, be successful in our own right. But you're exactly right. Um, You know, when much is given, you know, much is expected. And, you know, we have an obligation 
as as men and women and and particularly as adults and as as human beings to you know help one another when we can and that's a great way uh, as you said for for companies and organizations to get involved in their community reach out as you did you know 20 years ago and reach out and you find a need and it doesn't actually have to be the same one that you're doing but it can be uh, another need that uh, is in your community and you know when you're actively involved and you in- include your employees in the process um, they look at things a lot differently and they also look at you a lot differently as a business owner and saying, you know, it's not just all about dollars and cents for this individual. It's also about, you know, uh, making a, a positive impact in, in, in his or her community. So uh, I applaud you uh, for that, Claude, for, for doing a great job. Well, and and uh, it's, it's well, not we, an easy thing sometimes like to do. Well, actually, right. it, it's, it's always easier than you think it is. We served right. over 900 children in 2019. And it's going to grow to a thousand this year, and I have no right. idea how we got here. There was nothing hard about it; we just did it. I mean, it's it's almost <laughs> like a miracle. It's not uh, it's not something that was hard. We just had to start, and then just let right. see where it went. And then everybody does what they want to do, and then everybody next year wants to do more because they loved it so much when we did it. Well, it's, you, it's really you, you kind get of amazing see, how it works. Right. You get to see um, the expression, in your case, you get to see the expression on these young faces that you encounter, um, you know, through this journey for the last 20 years. And think of, you know, think of the impact, um, not just materially what they received, but just think of the impact that you and your, your group have made on these individuals. And I can guarantee you when they become adults, uh, and those that are already adults now, they will look back and they will remember that you did what you did. It, and they won't remember so much necessarily the specific items or so forth. It's the fact that somebody reached out and cared enough about them uh, to do something for them. That's what they will remember. And hopefully, in many cases, and I'm sure a lot of cases, they will do the same thing as they get older and develop as they'll they'll say that, you know, it's possible to do that, and they will reach back for somebody that maybe needs a helping hand in some way, shape, or form. So, uh, again, I congratulate you, and I know you're not doing it for uh, the congratulatory aspect of it. You're doing it um, because it, it's been pressed upon your heart and, and, uh, and, you, and your soul, and, and I, again, I applaud you and your group for that. I want to, as we just have a few more minutes left, and then we, we've got to wrap up, I want to give you the opportunity uh, to do two things, um, to let the folks know um, where they can reach out uh, to get more information about some great golf opportunities that Mystic Golf has to offer and where they can go to um, learn more about the, the uh, foundation and, uh, and some of the great work that you're doing. So let's start with the golf courses. How, how do we get advantage of some great uh, uh, golf buddy packages? Well, they can um, – uh, about a lot of ways. The first way that they can do it, which they might enjoy because they can see pictures and videos. We have some great videos that we created, uh, they can go to mysticalgolf.com, M-Y-S-T-I-C-A-L-G-O-L-F. And on Mystical Golf, uh, that's for all three golf courses, uh, but it also has a description and talks about the things we do uh, for our charity of events. So our two big fundraisers is we do a concert series uh, where we bring in performers. Uh, Larry Gatlin and his brothers have performed. Uh, mm-hmm. Ben Vereen has performed. Uh, 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 Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis, have, uh, the old Fifth Dimension, have performed. Uh, 
we have um, Crystal Gale's going to perform this January, and we do a concert series every January, and then we do our tournament in December. We do other things that are fundraisers that raise money, but they can find out about all of them on Mystical Golf also. Uh, the other thing they can, and they can find out about our packages that we sell through uh, our golf course uh, that are at the condos that are right beside now, uh, the Wizard, excuse me. And uh, mm-hmm. But also, if they uh, want to stay on the beach, they can ask any of the hotels on the beach because all of them pack, all of them love us, so they all package us. <laughs> and they, if they're talking to any hotel on the beach, they can say, I'd like to play the mystical pra- uh, golf courses or ask them for golf courses uh, individually, which man award and wizard, and they will package through them also. Because as I said, they all will package us. Perfect. Well, I I have thoroughly enjoyed our our discussion this evening, um, and I'm going to have to um, make a point of visiting uh, Myrtle Beach real soon. And if I do, I I guarantee you I'll be uh, I'll be uh, stepping on the the uh, hollowed grounds of the witch, if you will, and and uh, giving it my best. I'm going to definitely check out that uh, short par four and and uh, and test my my metal, if you will, on that one. Um, but Claude, oh, I want to I thank you very much that. for joining me tonight. Yeah, I, w- I will definitely. Oh, I will make a so point of doing that. Thank you for your hospitality. No. Yeah, thank you so much um, for your hospitality, and I so hope I didn't ramble on too much. No, you you were perfect. Um, you you I, I thoroughly enjoyed listening. You know, one of the the pleasures of of doing these programs is you know the great people that you you get introduced to in the golf business. I'm obviously in the golf business as well, and I teach and. And uh, do other things. And uh, just on a side note, um, I recently uh, actually purchased uh, Golf Tips magazine, so I'm now the publisher and owner uh, of that, that publication now. Yeah, and so um, we'll have to talk about that. There may be some opportunities that we can work together uh, through that venture. But um, but I, I appreciate you coming on tonight. I hope you you have an open invitation. You are welcome to come back anytime. And maybe as things progress through the year and you get closer to uh, maybe a special event or something that you're doing for your foundation, um, please reach out and let me know. And, and maybe, you know, I can have you come back on the show and, and plug that uh, ahead of time. So you're welcome to That'd do that. Just, uh, reach out anytime. One quick thing also, uh, sure. I understand you're from Canada. Yes, I, if, if you didn't pick it up in the accent, then yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's right. My I friends and I, home, but, but next time, <laughs> next time, uh, next time you interview me, and write this down. Uh, we need uh-huh. to talk about my experience with my good friend Mo Norman, because there are some oh, stories yes. that are worth telling. Mo and I became well, I, friends I, back I, in the eighties, <laughs> and yeah. he was something. <laughs> I I knew Mo uh, quite well. Uh, obviously, not as well as you did, but I played a few rounds with him, and I knew him. Uh, actually, through another acquaintance, a very good friend of his, which I'm sure you probably know, Nick Westlock, uh, as well. I haven't met him. Um, I met him okay. because well, he, he used yeah. to come and teach at the Pinehurst School, and he, he right. didn't trust their housing, so he lived in his Volkswagen Beetle <laughs> at my golf course right. at, at uh, Southern Pines. <laughs> And I'd feed him breakfast every morning. Then he'd go teach at the Pinehurst School. Then he'd come straight back and hit balls on my range, and I'd talk to him and watch him for hours. Yeah, he was uh, he was uh, a very interesting 
gentleman to say the least. But yeah, well, I'll, I will definitely have you come back if nothing else to share some great uh, Mo Norman stories Norman. for sure. Um, again, right. well, thank yeah. you very much. Uh, not a problem, Claude. Thank you again, and uh, go to mysticalgolf.com to learn more about. Uh, the great properties that uh, are available to play in the Myrtle Beach area. And uh, also, um, maybe you can do some some help with Claude's foundation as well. I think he would appreciate that. Claude, again, thank you very much. God bless, my friend, for coming on. And I look forward to hosting you again uh, on on our future show. Thank you and have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right, that was my very special guest, Claude Pardue, president and CEO of Mystical Golf. And again, go to mysticalgolf.com. Uh, they've got some great uh, packages for uh, you golfing enthusiasts out there. And, uh, you know, uh, let's get out there and play and enjoy this game. And I can't think of a better place to send you than to Myrtle Beach. So uh, get out there and, and book your uh, golfing vacation. Get your, your group together. Get your golf buddies together. And let's get out and play some golf. Again, I want to thank everybody on the Coach's Corner panel, uh, Jamie Leno-Zimron, John Hughes, and Paul Castor. And once again, thank you to my special guest, Claude Pardue, President and CEO of Mystical Golf. Thanks, guys, for doing a wonderful job and for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. I enjoy uh, doing these shows tremendously, and I look forward to uh, another great panel discussion next week and another uh, interesting guest interview. So I hope you'll join me. Uh, have a great weekend, everybody. God bless, and I'll see you next time right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts. Or listen on any of the following social media platforms. iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.